Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to the Boss Uncaged podcast. So today's show, is, I think it's going to be a, a very interesting show for, for multiple different reasons. And you guys always know when I interview someone, I like to give them a particular nickname. So this episode, I'm going to nickname this particular boss, the Accelerator Boss. And he's going to be able to dive in deeper and tell you exactly why I'm calling him that. I, I watched some of his YouTube videos, and I just think that his some of his theories and concepts are definitely profound. So without further ado, Robin, the floor is yours. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about who you are? and what you do. SA, I am super excited to be on your show. I, uh, so my name is Robin Copernicus. I am the founder of Vertical Liftoff, which is the first startup accelerator that helps you skip investor funding. So the way the entire industry is set up right now, if you think about the startup industry, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like trying to get that record deal, right? Like people will try to go on Shark Tank and they will put all their hopes and dreams in someone else's hands. And it's all about making these investors happy. It's all about making these sharks happy. And the thing is, we don't have to do things this way anymore. So as I'm sitting there and I have an MBA and after my MBA program, like I'm taught to, you know, go after this huge market size and and just do things this MBA way. But I realized like it, it sets the founder up for failure. One of the first things that a business school professor will tell you is that 96% of your startups will fail. And that's because the way that they're teaching it. And I feel like because of the technologies that we have now, um, in terms of Facebook ads, Twitter ads, it's never been you know, easier to get in front of your customer. And there's like new ways to develop businesses. And this is kind of like the premise for this entire accelerator program. And I'm just like super excited because I think this puts a lot of empowerment in the founders' hands and it strips away found, uh, strips away power from the venture capitalists and mm-hmm. all on the founders. So, I mean, with that, I mean, like, that's like a double-edged sword, right? Because, I mean, obviously capital funding, angel investments, founding, and all that. So equity raises is like the, the bedrock to like banking, right? The principles behind it. So there's a lot of people playing that game and you're stepping into that space and you're saying, well, there's another way of doing things. So have you gotten any like negative pushback from like the banking and the, and the establishment because of what you're doing? I've actually had the opposite where venture capitalists will come to me and say, Robin, you are dropping some knowledge because a lot of early stage startup founders, they're actually not ready for venture capital. They're not ready for investment. And all they do is they waste their time focusing on just building pitch decks and chasing investors when really they should be focused on, you know, creating value, building up a customer list, um, creating a product, getting some traction, getting some revenue, prove that it actually works. And then when you're ready to take on some investment because you need to make some step up moves, for example, you need to buy a new factory or something like this, that's when it makes sense to talk to an investor. So the way that we're actually building building businesses, I'm actually collecting a group of startup investors right now that are you know, totally in line with how we're doing it. And they want to invest in these businesses because they know that these businesses have less risk because you know, you're starting with traction, you're starting with revenue, and it, it, we just make it like a really no-brainer way for investors to get involved. And the way that investors get involved are in non-equity ways. So this way, the founder keeps total control of their vision. Um, what, I've, what I've learned is that when founders start giving away control of their vision, they'll give away you know, 3 to 5% of their equity. 
they end up actually just giving away 100% of their time because now they have an investor breathing down their neck, telling them exactly what to do. And it's just, it's just not a good setup for founders. So I, I, then it goes back to what I said earlier about being profound with your theories, right? And I think one of the quotes that you had stated on one of your YouTube videos was like, you guys have designed a platform that you create a moat around your business by building customer lists before that customer even, or before that client even gets to the point to where they want to do an equity raise or they want to get funding. So let's just talk about that a little bit. I mean, obviously from a marketing standpoint, we always preach about the riches are in the list. So to hear someone on the equity side talk about that is definitely interesting. Yeah, the riches are in the list, the riches are in the niches. In the past, the way that it's been is if you wanted to market to a, a very specific niche, it was really difficult because it's not scalable, right? So in the past, you would have to, if you took out a Super Bowl commercial, for example, well, the Super Bowl commercial is going to be really expensive and your cost of cost, uh, I'm sorry, your cost of customer acquisition is going to be really high and you're not going to see any ROI from this campaign. But it's not like that anymore, right? So we don't have to take out Super Bowl commercials. We can actually have scalable marketing processes where we're attacking this very small niche. And the way that we're doing it is we are delivering unparalleled value to this niche. So it's really difficult for other people to compete. And when you do it this way and you start building out this customer list and you dominate this very specific niche, this is like the new way to build companies where it's really difficult to fail. Because if you start with the list, you do put that moat around your business. One of the one of the things or one of the questions that we ask our accelerator members before they graduate. So before they graduate, they have to answer yes to this question. Can your business survive? Can your startup survive if you don't have a product? And if you can answer yes to that question, then you have increased your probability of success. And the way you do this is you start off with building this audience. You become the guy for this audience and you're delivering so much value to this audience that it's really difficult for other people to compete because your total focus is just on delivering value to this very specific group. And that's the way that you grow. And the thing is, companies in the past, they've grown exactly the same way. So Facebook actually grew this way. Amazon grew this way. YouTube grew this way. Um, if you think about Facebook, for example, if Facebook wasn't thinking, you know, 2 billion, 3 billion users, the problem that they were initially trying to solve is how do we get more Harvard students to date other Harvard students? They wanted to meet more women on Harvard campus. So they built this social media platform to get that job done. And as they did it for Harvard, they dominated the entire Harvard market. Then they started moving on to other Ivy League schools. They dominated that market. Then it was top 20 schools. Then it was all schools. And then they slowly scaled out. But the initial purpose was just to solve this very specific problem for a very specific niche, which is how do we get other Harvard students to get laid? Nice. Nice. Well, that, that, that's, that's one way to end a sentence, right? <laughs> so... So, I mean, let's talk about you a little bit. I mean, obviously, like your business savviness, I mean, you understand what you're doing well beyond like the, norm the normality of the world right now, right? So if you could define yourself in three to five words, what would those three to five words be? Yeah, so in terms of defining myself, this is actually a really difficult question. I would just have to really um, go back to what my core values are. So I think our core values is what really defines us. So for me, my core values are brutal honesty, team is family, freedom. So when I say freedom, this is like freedom to be yourself. Some people think financial freedom or anything like, you know, uh, these other type of things. Freedom to be yourself is really like the real freedom, right? Because that's like peace. You're actually capturing peace. Um, 
one shot, one kill. The idea behind that phrase is if you're going to do something right, or if you're going to do anything, do it with intention, 100% intention, with the intention of doing it right. So even if you fail, that's okay. As long as the intention is there, then you know you have a higher probability to succeed. If you're going at it half-assed, and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to curse on this uh, show or not, but if you're if you're yeah, if you're, um, you know, if you're putting in 50% intention to whatever you're doing, then obviously you're going to fail. So that's another one. And the fifth one is actually just kind of like leaving my my head or probably come back a little bit later. Let me see. Team is family, brutal honesty, freedom, which I, I also use this Spanish phrase called which is like, you know, the freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it. Um, one shot, one kill. And there's one more and I just can't remember that say. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. It's good. So, I mean, with that, right, I mean, you're talking about businesses of multiple different variables, right? You're talking about essentially startups, but some of these startups may already kind of been started. So they're more small business or it could be solopreneurs and entrepreneurs. So when you're guiding them in the right direction, like what kind of business structure are you setting up? Are you more so start with an LLC, grow into an S-Corp, convert to a C-Corp? Like what flavor are you setting the bar at? So... In terms of legal structures, this is not my expertise. And and in terms of working with like governments and you know trying to get grants or or setting up companies, this is actually something that's very painful for me. So this is something that I I hire other people to do, um, just because I don't want to do it. Interfacing with the government, interfacing with investors, I like to have total control. So this is actually one of the philosophies that I have in terms of like just living my life. Um, one of the one, of, and this is kind of going on on a tangent, so I hope you don't mind. I say, but one of the strategies that I'm doing right now, just, it, just in terms of having happiness in my life, is uh, I'm doing the strategy called a nomad trifecta. So in terms of the nomad trifecta, if you live in three different countries, then you can minimize your taxes by not triggering tax residency anywhere. And when I'm picking out my countries, I actually have um, this criteria. It's like it's called the four W's, and it's going to make you laugh. But the four W's are weed, weather, women, and wages. And the, the way that I look at it, that the place has to have good weed. Um, it has to have you know beautiful women. Um, the weather has to be nice. And then in terms of wages, like this is somewhere that I can set up a business and I can, you know, actually hire people and, and, and be able to grow that way. But the other thing that I didn't mention in this framework is when I'm looking to move somewhere, I'm looking at countries that have low bureaucracy, because if you move to Portugal, for example, there's programs that you can do where you can minimize your taxes to 0%, but they scrutinize every single transaction that you do. And it's just so difficult. And if you miss something that you might have to pay, so just this bureaucratic process is something that it goes against my values in terms of freedom. So when we take in um, accelerator members into the program, the legal structures, none of this stuff really matters. We only focus on three things. And those three things are how to get customers, how to keep customers, and how to increase the lifetime value. And really, those are the only three objectives that a, any business needs to have. Anything else in terms of legal structuring or anything like that, that is stuff where you might even be trying to solve problems that you don't even have yet. So I would even advise against going and get an LLC or, or, or work, you know, even getting a, a domain name, et cetera. And I would really just focus on what kind of solutions are you going to develop? First, develop that customer list and then pull them for what kind of solutions or what kind of problems they have so you can build solutions around their problems. That way you already have product market fit. You have people willing to buy your product and you have this community that's like ready to hype this product up for you. And this is the way that we're growing. So instead of like focusing on LLCs or, or things like that, we just focus on those three things. Nice, nice. Getting customers, keeping customers, increasing lifetime value. 
So, I mean, I think you, you said some like very insightful things. And one of the things that I want to like pull back the layer on was the, I think you, I forgot the exact name, but I, I guess it's a, a trilogy of nomads or nomad trilogy. The nomad trifecta. Nomad trifecta. So, I mean, just this, I want to pull back on that because I want people to like really understand that. Like what you said was being able to live in three different regions, three different countries at the same time. So you're essentially not associated by red, by being landlocked to any one of them for a period of time, which will mean that you don't have to pay taxes. And so like, how does that work? And I, I think that that's a concept that when you said it to some people, it probably went over their heads. But when I, once I heard it, I was just like, holy shit, stop everything you're talking about and get back to that particular topic. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, so so this isn't my expertise or, or, or anything like that. It's just something that I'm actually actively doing, but I will share what I've learned so far. Um, in terms of what I've learned so far, there is this theory. It started off as the three flags theory and then the five flags theory, and now it's like the six flags theory. And in terms of where you set up your flags, each flag is a different objective that you might have, a, a different facet to your business. So in terms of these um, flags, this is all related to taxes. If you are concerned about capital gains taxes, then you want to set up a flag in a country that is friendly for capital gains. If you're a U.S. citizen, um, you're the, the Uncle Sam is going to get you for taxes. So there's like no way of hiding your Bitcoin capital gains or anything like that. But for other citizens that that don't have Uncle Sam kind of over their back. For example, British citizens, um, if they're living in another, another country, they have capital gains in another country, then the UK won't touch those taxes. So that could be one flag. Then another flag is where you spend your money. So where you spend your money is somewhere where you want low sales taxes. And that way, you know, if, if you're in a high, um, in a country that has like a high VAT, a value-added tax, and you're spending a lot of money buying things, that's probably not where you want to spend your money. So you look for a country that has low taxes so you can spend your money. So for example, Dubai, this is a place where people go because it has very low taxes. Um, for your business, for corporate taxes, then you want to set up where you want to think about setting up your business, right? So for your corporate taxes, um, if you set up, for example, in Puerto Rico, this is probably the only place where Americans can set up where you are getting, I think it's like 4% corporate taxes. And if you are, are making any income outside of Puerto Rico, that might not even get taxed. I'm not a tax professional. I'm not really sure about that. But this is another tax flag that you can set up. For me, the tax flag that I'm looking at right now, I'm actually in Medellin, Colombia. And Medellin has very high taxes. They actually tax worldwide income. So if I'm here too long, they will tax me at 30%. So where I'm thinking about setting up my business, I was actually focused on two different locations, Dubai and the Canary Islands. Dubai was one place because you can pay 0% taxes and getting set up is like really simple, really easy. However, Dubai, if you get caught with a little bit of weed, it's, if it's at the bottom of your shoe and it's definitely all over my laptop, um, if you get caught with it at all, then I think, I think uh, the price you pay is like, 100 years in prison, something like that. It's like ridiculous. So Dubai is definitely not for me. Um, that's not the place that I want to be. Canary Islands, however, Canary Islands, which is um, part of Spain, they have special tax provisions where for corporations it's around 4%. So this is another consideration. So based on these different flags that you want to set up, um, if you actually check out Nomad Cats, who has a pretty popular YouTube show, this is like a really good place to find more information about that. Nice, nice. So, I mean, I, I think that, that's that's a hell of a information to kind of just just drop on a podcast like that. And I mean, I mean, we could probably talk about that all day, all night. So, unfortunately, we, we got to move on. But I definitely love that philosophy of like the trilogy, and obviously, you know, 
being less than four months in any particular location gives you the, the, the autonomy to kind of say, I don't want to pay taxes or I want to leverage taxes in different locations. That's, that's golden. That's a golden nugget in itself. We can stop the podcast right now. Go ahead and send out invoices to everyone and then cash it in, right? <laughs> so going, going to my next question, I mean, obviously, you're, you're hella savvy when it comes down to like the, in, in, the, the insight between entrepreneurism and how to leverage and how to work and the inner workings of these particular systems. But this is not something that has happened for you overnight. So how long have you been on the journey from start to where you are right now? I say I've been a natural born entrepreneur like since birth so i definitely self-identify as a natural born hustler natural born entrepreneur it's something that you know something that's just always been a part of me however it's not some entrepreneurs get nurtured because they have an entrepreneurial family my family was a little bit different where my parents were very risk averse and they weren't always risk averse they, my, my parents, they're first generation immigrants to the U.S. And as immigrants to the U.S., when they first moved to the U.S., they don't have any friends. They don't have any, any family. And if they make a mistake, they can't feed their kids the next day, right? So they became very risk averse, even though just leaving their country was a huge risky undertaking. But now this new risk averseness that my parents had, it kind of you know, carried over to us because anytime that I would have any kind of business idea, my parents would talk me out of it. They would say, you know, that's not the way to do it. The way you do it is, you know, quote unquote, the right way is you go get a job and you start getting some stability in your life. As soon as you get some stable income, you start working on your side hustle. Your My, my dad didn't say side hustle, but you know, you get the point, uh, your side business. And as soon as that side business starts making enough money, then you can easily just hop over from employed to employer. Right. And on paper, this sounds legit. It sounds it sounds logical. It's like, yeah, that's how you should do it because it minimizes risk. But what really ends up happening in practice is you end up splitting your focus between two different things. So you you put 50 percent of your focus on your day job. You put 50 percent of your focus on your startup and in your day job, even if even if 100 percent or even if 50 percent of your focus is equal to 100% of your coworkers focus, right? Like, let's just say you are a superstar. It doesn't matter. The people at your job, they're going to see that you don't have full commitment. You're probably going to want to talk about your startup as well. And if you're not allowed to, then this is probably putting a constraint on you. And what ends up happening is you're probably going to get fired. Not only are you going to get fired, but the startup that you're working on, there's someone else that's working on the exact same solution, but they're putting 100% of their focus onto it. And what a lot of founders will find is by the time they actually get done into releasing something that people will buy, the product is already obsolete. So I, I actually can't remember the question, kind of went off on a, on a tangent. Um, no, what was I the think, question again? I think you definitely you nailed it. I mean, it's just kind of like the journey of becoming an overnight success and, and the reality of how long it took you to get from point A to point B. And to your answer, you were saying you've been doing it your entire life, right? So with that being said, right, if you can go back in time, right? And again, you, you said you've been an entrepreneur your entire life. And obviously, there's been hurdles and overcoming different situations and figuring out things probably sooner than later. If you can go back to one particular time in history and whisper in your ears for 30 seconds, what would you tell your younger self to change your outcome to make it happen a lot faster now? Yeah. Um, it, just in three words or four words, actually, other people don't know shit. So the thing is, if you are doing something that's truly innovative mm -hmm. and you're trying to get advice from other people, then it really, you know, it behooves you to get advice from people that have actually done it, not from people that 
you're surrounded with or, or surrounded by because those people, they haven't done it and they're going to give you wrong advice. So they're either going to be haters or they're going to love you and they're going to encourage you. Either way, you're probably going to get wrong advice because if they're haters, you know, the way that they're going to look at it is, oh, this stuff is not possible because if it was possible for you to do it, then I would have done it. And because I haven't done it, it's not possible for you. So they're going to hate on you. Right. On the flip side, if they're not haters and they actually love you, they want to encourage you. They might not even know what you're talking about, um, but they're but they're going to say, yeah, go ahead and build it and, and, you know, go ahead and do this. I'm going to be your first customer, et cetera. They're going to give you a lot of lip service that's going to give you a lot of encouragement, but they don't know what they're talking about either. So it really um, if you're going to do something. I would say, and this actually kind of goes into one of the interviews that I heard you on essay where you gave this great example where someone was, you know, putting something up on the wall and or, or fixing their house. And if they wanted to cut into their wall, you know, it seems really easy on the surface. But once you start getting into that wall, then there's all this plumbing and electrical work and things like that. And it really like helps to go to those professionals, talk to the professionals, instead of seeking advice from all these other people that are giving you bad advice. So I think that, you know, if I were to go back into the past, that this is not just about business either. This is about personal life. Um, so for example, there's a lot of things in in society that we just kind of assume is the way, you know, the way you do things. For example, marriage. This was a huge struggle for me as I'm growing up because my entire life I'm told, you know, I should go find a partner, go go get married, etc. And it wasn't until much later in life after a few toxic relationships where I really discovered that I'm so much more happier just by myself. And now like I've made a commitment to myself to only date myself and not, you know, be with these toxic people anymore. And life has just changed. But because I'm not focused on this need that society puts on me in terms of, you know, you have to get married, you have to find a wife, because I've changed those things. And I've kind of reevaluated what life is actually really supposed to look like. Um, and it really just comes for me, it really just comes down to two things. So earlier, you asked, what are some words that kind of define you? And the words on my t shirt, actually, it says profit and happiness. So I think when, once you start putting life into terms of not just profit, but also happiness, then things come into perspective. Mm -hmm. And the way that we're actually doing this for our accelerator members is with a vertical startup. So a vertical startup, again, when I mentioned we are building companies where instead of going wide, which sets the founder up for failure, we are we're building scalable companies that address a very specific niche. And when done the right way, you can get both profit and happiness. So the way that we actually do it, we use the vertical method. And, and do you mind I say if I go into the vertical method a little bit? Yeah, no, go for it. All right. So the vertical method is a two-prong approach. And this will give you both profit and happiness in your business. And if you follow this method, this will increase your probability of success and you will not be one of those statistics where 96% of startups fail. So the vertical method is a two-prong approach. And the first prong is to pick a niche that's congruent with your core identity. So what, what this means is we are establishing founder market fit. And why this is so important is because when a lot of founders, when they fail, they will tell you things like their co-founder left them, the investors that they had, you know, pulled out last minute and then they got ghosted or they couldn't get an investor at all or um, Google had shut their shut their ad account down or AWS charged them three, four, five times their amount and they lost their entire runway and now their startups frozen. They'll give you all these different types of excuses. But what's really going on in the founder's head is that this founder just got bored and gave up because if the founder still had motivation, then I truly believe that this founder would have 
you know, figure out how to make it happen, right? But what happens is as founders, as visionaries, as entrepreneurs, especially natural born entrepreneurs, we see commercial opportunities everywhere. We see, you know, million dollar ideas here, billion dollar ideas there. And we jump on an idea without thinking about what our life is going to look like 10 years down the road. And entrepreneurs, when they first start a business, they look into something that is supposed to bring them freedom but really it ends up trapping themselves into another job. And this, you know, as soon as the first obstacle comes up, this is a great reason to quit and they're happy about quitting. And then, you know, this is the reason that they'll give you in terms of why they failed. So we fix this problem where the founder doesn't give up by establishing founder market fit. And this is really, if done correctly, you pick a niche that's congruent with your core identity. And if you do this first, then you will have, you will have what you need to build an operating system for your empire. Because once you know who you are, who you want to serve, then everything after that is just like putting on different modules to build your empire, right? So that's the first prong of the vertical method. The second prong of the vertical method is the GPDS framework. And the GPDS framework goes like this. We grow a customer list first, then we pre-sell a minimum viable mock-up, then we develop a solution, and then we scale a solution. So this is going to be a learning podcast. I hope you guys are taking notes, but the GPDS framework is grow a customer list first, pre-sell a minimum viable mock-up, then you develop, and then you scale. So each of these line items that I just mentioned, there's nothing innovative there, but where the innovation lies is in the order of operations, right? So instead of doing what everyone else is doing, and instead of building the product first, and you know, a lot of founders, when they're testing for product market fit, this is usually where they'll fail. They'll, they will have realized that they poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into building something that no one else even wants to buy. And I'll actually tell you that the average amount that founders that come into the vertical liftoff program, the accelerator program, the average amount that they spend is around $100,000 before coming into the program. And then they just sit with tons of inventory that are just sitting in their basement that they can't move. And when they first come into the program, they are able to start getting traction the very first week. And then as soon as they start getting traction, they're like, oh my God, I should have done this first because now they can actually grow this customer list, find out what to develop before developing it first and you know building something that people don't want to buy. Instead of So instead of developing a solution first, we are growing that customer list first. Instead of doing a crowdfunding campaign first, a lot of founders make this mistake as well, where they will set up a Indiegogo campaign or a Kickstarter campaign, and they'll put a lot of resources into building this campaign. And once they launch the campaign, crickets, because Kickstarter does not send traffic to people. People don't realize that. You actually have to keep sending traffic to yourself. So if you have to spend all this time sending traffic to your Kickstarter account, why not just get rid of Kickstarter and send traffic to yourself instead? So instead of doing all these different mistakes, we are growing that customer list first. Once, excuse me, I had some sweat. <laughs> Once you grow that customer list, then that's when you start building this operating system for your empire, right? Because the more people that you have on your customer list, the more brand authority you have, the way that VLO members like to think about it is every single prospect that you put into your customer list is like money in the bank, right? So really quick math lesson, the way that we look at it is let's say that your customer, let's say that you have a customer lifetime value in terms of profitability at $100. Well, if you have a conversion rate of 5%, every single person that you collect into your community, they have a 5% probability to convert, 5% times $100 lifetime value, every single person is worth $5. So if you think about it in terms of like this, the person that grows the biggest customer list first will just start growing money in the bank. And even if you don't have a product, 
to sell, you can still sell access to your list. You can do joint ventures with other people. You can create brand new products and services and you'll stay afloat. You'll build this moat around your business by starting with that customer list first and building this vertical startup, which, which is a company that is hyper-focused on delivering value to a very specific niche. Cool, cool. So just let me step back and, you know, I'm listening to you actively and I'm taking mental notes. So one of the things that I, that I want to talk about based on what you just said is like the partnership level, right? So somebody cold coming in, they may not have a list. So first part of this question is like, how are you essentially helping them create the list? And two, what are you doing to help them partner? Because obviously when you're talking about marketing, partnering with someone else in, in a core niche that you may be related to, to get access to a larger list a lot quicker and a lot cheaper will probably be more effective than building your list from square one. Yeah, absolutely. I see. So in terms of growing your list, there's really three different ways you can do it, right? So one of them you just mentioned is partnerships. So the three different ways are organic traffic, paid traffic, and partnership traffic. And the way that you the way that you use each of these different ways, and I actually have a podcast episode about it as well. So if you like podcasts, um, I have a podcast called The 6% Entrepreneur. And I actually answer a lot of these questions. So like, how do you build a community without an MVP? Or what are the three different types of traffic? But in terms of the three different types of traffic, there's paid traffic, organic, and partnership. And the common misbelief is you just have to pick one and you just stick with one. But the thing is, they actually all work in a system. And the way they work in a system is, you are absolutely right, I say, when you are, if you can find other people that already have this customer list and partner with them, that is the best way to add steroids to your customer list growth. But then after that, then it's your job to start, you know, nurturing. I mean, just just look at what I'm doing here, right? On this podcast, SA, you have built up this awesome, amazing uh, following at, at Boston Cage. And, you know, me, there's like people that are vying for your attention, vying to get in front of your audience. And you have this long line of, of people where, what did you say? You had like 70 podcasts that are unpublished that you're kind of yeah. good until quarter two. Yep. Yeah. About 70, 70 something at this point. Yeah. yeah so just, just starting with this customer list, like even if you don't have a product or anything, um, when you're doing partnerships, this is the fastest way to start boosting your customer list. And then in terms of organic traffic and paid traffic, these all kind of work in tandem. So organic traffic, you're not going to see Organic traffic works in, in, in a few different ways. So you can think of organic traffic as SEO. You can also think of organic traffic as social selling. So the way it works is you start off with social selling first and you have to go organic. So this is pretty much like the mentality that I think about this and every startup founder should have this mentality is really a musician that was like in the, in the early 2000s before the iPhone came out, hustling CDs out of the back of their trunk because they're getting out in front of the market. They're talking to people. This is organic. And this is something you need to do to be able to at least test the market to see if your product um, has fit. Once you start getting this organic social selling traffic, right, then you take your learn because you're going to get your marketing message much tighter. You take that learning and then you can start scaling with paid ads. So this is like all working in a system. But at the same time, a lot of times when you think about organic traffic, if you're not doing social selling, people might consider Instagram pages or SEO. This is a mistake that an early start, early stage startup founder might make is just focusing all their effort into SEO or their Instagram page because these things, even though the, this is, you know, you should definitely start it. 
it takes a lot of time for you to see any return on that investment. So it'll take around three, four years before you see any kind of return. So I would definitely say do it, but that's not the end all be all. The real key to making all of this happen is to putting it in a, in a system that's step-by-step. Step. And that's exactly actually what we do in the vertical liftoff program, where we bring you in this cohesive um, system where instead of going to all these different places where you're kind of like patching things together and creating this Frankenstein, you have this cohesive system to be able to launch your startup. And the real key is not even to build this customer list, but launch your startup on your own terms without seeking investors. So you can actually have control of your entire community and you grow together. You're growing with your people and you're not doing things to make shareholders happy. You're doing things to make your customers happy. Nice, nice. So, I mean, with that, I mean, obviously, you're hella passionate, right? And your energy level is is, is through the damn roof, right? So, I mean, uh, and again, like, I'm a native New Yorker, so, like, speaking fast, I, I definitely comprehend it, and, and I love running with it. So, like, my next question, based on this energy level, right, this, this thing has to come from within somehow. Like, what does your morning routines look like? How are you getting your endorphins up to maintain this level of energy throughout your day? That's a good question. I say, so my morning routine is actually really like tranquil. Um, it's really peaceful. I have all my notifications off on my phone. The way that I wanted to wake up was I wanted to wake up peacefully, no alarm clocks, just naturally with the sun, be able to look outside, look at some trees, um, look at some scenery out in the, out in the, like outside of my window, I have a small white Pomeranian dog. So we spend around 15 minutes just kind of cuddling with each other. And it's just like a really peaceful way to wake up. I wake up, I go get some coffee. Um, I order some, so I don't cook any of my food. So I ordered it from a Uber Eats equivalent in Colombia called Rappi. Order my breakfast. Then I go take my dog out for a walk. We have a really nice walk. And then that was like my morning routine now. And then the very first thing that I did was just hop on this podcast with you. Nice, nice. So, I mean, with that, I mean, obviously, I like the fact that you're saying, like, you know, you don't cook any meals, you're ordering all the meals, but you're leveraging, obviously, the network at hand to keep your your days systematically done, right? With that, this next question is a three-part question. Like, you're talking about systems, you're talking about marketing, you're talking about business strategy, you're talking about business modeling, business growth, and I could list off probably another 30 different variables of, of what we've talked about so far. So, on this journey, right? There's, what have you read in the beginning of your journey to kind of help you get to where you are? It's the first question. Second question is, what books are you actively or listening to right now currently? And the third part to this question is like, with all this information in your head, have you had an opportunity to create any books as of yet to leverage this information? Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to answer the questions backwards just because this is how I'm kind of remembering it. Um, I'm actually in the middle of writing a book right now. We've already started a pre-sale. The book is called MinimumViableMockup.com. So if you are a early stage startup founder and you want to minimize the amount of money that you're probably leak doing, doing it the MBA way or the traditional way, and you want to be able to do this for yourself where you keep 100% of your equity and you're doing it in a way that where you can actually live a life where you wake up early in the morning and it's not like you know the hustle and bustle of New York because I, I can definitely... Um, I can definitely, what's it called? I can definitely like stay on top of that. I can definitely match that energy level. But really for me to be happy, that's, that's like my primary goal. So I really just sat down and thought about what would make me happy. And this entire process that I built, I put this into the book, Minimum Viable Mockup. And if you actually go to minimumviablemockup.com, and if you 
get into the pre-sale, you will be added into my early adopter community. And in my early adopter community, I am actually giving out content that is worth way more than what the book is worth. So I think it's like a, a, a really good setup. So if you're interested, if you are an early stage startup founder and you want to learn how to launch a startup without seeking investor funding, so you can keep 100% of your equity where the focus is on profit and happiness. Um, yeah, if you go to minimalbiblemockup.com, um, check out that book, join my early adopter community. We'd love to have you and we'd love to hear from you. Then some of the books that have been a game changer, I can't really remember the second question essay, but the first um, question was what what's one of the pivotal books? And then I guess the second question was what are some of the books that I'm reading right now? So some of the books that I'm reading right now to answer the second question, once you start building your business, this book called Traction by Gino Wickman, it really helped put things into perspective on how I should organize my business. And that, have you read that book essay? Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal book, right? So this is a great book, Traction by Gino Wickman. Definitely one of those fundamental things that you should read. Another book that I've read, because I'm one of those people that are very freedom oriented, and I just like to do things like very loose, but at the same time, like you have to have structure where you can still operate with freedom, right? So having that freedom um, to, to be creative within the structure that allows for that, like that's something that really vibes with me. So something that's been able to open that up for me is another book called Profit First. In terms of being a natural born entrepreneur, and I would actually love to talk about what a natural born entrepreneur is in, in uh, hopefully... Um, in a few, but if you're a natural born entrepreneur, then doing finances, doing budgeting is probably not your thing. You're out there, you, you want to grow things, you want to build things, and you're this visionary and you don't want to focus on like just, you know, cleaning up all the, all the mess in the background. So this book called Profit First, and I think the name, like Mike, it starts with a W, um, really difficult to pronounce last name, but Profit first, this book helped me figure out how I should implement all my budgeting systems. And then after implementing this, like we know exactly where our money is coming, where it's going, where we're able to actually grow our company in a very systematic way. And we're actually making profit first. So um, we're not focused on top line, we're actually focused on the bottom line, we're, we're bringing profit in. This was a very helpful book. Now to answer your first question, some of the most pivotal books that really changed the way that I think, I'll actually just name one. This book is called Thinking Fast and Slow, and it's by Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman is the father of behavioral economics, and this was actually what I learned in my degree program at Johns Hopkins. Um, my focus, my degree focus was consumer decision-making. So how do people think when they buy things? This to me is fascinating. I just actually just love to learn how people think, how people make decisions, and this book like, will just totally change your mind about how the brain works, how people make decisions, how people place themselves in the world, and how you can actually get them to buy more things. So it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's by Daniel Kahneman. And it goes into really just the, the um, decision-making science, why people make decisions that they do. And it goes into all these different biases and heuristics that you can actually use for your marketing material. So this was like a fundamental thing that mm -hmm. totally changed the way I look at the world and, and the way I look at myself as well. 
Nice, nice. I mean, the reason why I ask this question is because, again, everyone's journey is completely different and the books that they read are completely different as well. So I've had an opportunity to interview enough people to kind of like hoard these books. And, you know, I've created a book club because of it. It's like an online book directory. So, I mean, to your point, I mean, that that first book that you just mentioned was a book that I had not read yet that obviously I'm going to add into to, to the book group. And the second book, Profit First, Pound for pound, any entrepreneur, if you have not read Profit First, you definitely should because the, the, the title of the book self-defines exactly what you need to be doing with your revenue streams. You need to be paying yourself a premium first before you pay anyone else out. And that includes your bills. That includes overhead. Pay yourself first. And I mean, that book is definitely a goldmine for any entrepreneur on that journey. And to your third book, your book, I'm definitely interested in, in, in getting on part of your, your founding launch to kind of check that book out. Because Again, I think that your theories and your philosophies are definitely sound and, and they're profound in the sense that your energy level backing them is supporting them to make the audience grow. Again, I think that's some of your psychological your psycho, your psychological background as well is adding into that. So um, going into that, I mean, obviously the journey, like you just kind of defined these books and you talked about what helped you grow and, and how you've gotten this information. Where do you see yourself 20 years from now? Yeah, 20 years from now, I see myself just growing this community of early stage startup founders. Like these are really my people. The people that I love to hang out with are people that are bright, intelligent, creative. They like to build things. And just if I can, if I can just keep on finding more people like this and surrounding myself with more people like this, then this I know is leading me towards happiness. So 20 years from now, I'm just growing my empire. I still have the same focus, but it's a lot bigger right? Because now I have more products and services that I can service to my empire. So one of the strategies, and your listeners are actually going to love this, but one of the strategies that I'm employing in my business right now, and if you want more information on the strategy, if you go to the 6% Entrepreneur Podcast that I have, um, it's at the6percent.co, so T-H-E-6percent.co. It's called the Vertical Method Meets the Digital Asset Flywheel. And the whole idea behind this is when I'm looking at all these different businesses, right? People start with the product first. And this is a mistake. So for me, because I'm starting with the audience first, now I'm thinking about other products and services that I can deliver to my audience. So one product that I'm considering developing, and, and I'll tell you what can, uh, developing means to me, but is, is this pre-sale widget. So because I'm helping my accelerator members grow their customer list, the very next step is for them to pre-sell the products. And there's all these different pre-sell games that you can do. And it, you know, if there was like a widget that would be able to do it, it would be really helpful. And if you're listening to this, you, you know, you're probably thinking, yeah, that would be super helpful. But here's the thing I say, there are around 40 companies that are like this that already exist. So I actually did some research on Google there's like 40 different startups that have built the exact same thing. But every single one of these websites, if you look at them, they're dusty. They have no traction. I think only one of them had like three reviews. And I'm pretty, I would say like with 98% certainty that these reviews were probably from friends and family. But all of these companies, they're dusty. They're, they're probably bankrupt. And instead of me just building another product, because I have this customer list, I can easily go and acquire any of these companies at pennies on the dollar because these founders will be happy that someone is taking this debt off their hands, right? So they probably spent maybe, you know, 40 to 50, $100,000 developing this. And if I offer them $30,000, that's $30,000 that they get to recoup that they didn't have before. So now I can buy these companies and put my customer list on these companies for instant MRR. And then as I'm doing this instant MRR, I can either just keep the cash flow or I can flip it and then just keep on doing this as I'm growing my generational wealth by buying and selling these internet companies. 
Nice, nice. So, I mean, you throw out some terminology right there and, and just, for, you know, for the layman listener, like what is an MRR? MRR is your monthly recurring revenue. So when you're looking at um, the way that businesses is kind of evolving is what we're realizing is if you just sell one thing to one person, it's really costly because your cost of customer acquisition is really high. If you actually calculated what this cost was, um, for a SaaS business, for example, it's around $400. For a dry cleaning business, I'm not sure what that number is, but it could be $200, $300. So you have to sell way more product for you, you to actually recoup these costs. For you to be able to recoup these costs, you can't just be like a one-time sell. You have to put them on some kind of subscription plan. So if you can get some recurring revenue from these people by adding some kind of service onto your product, then this is how you build MRR. You start getting this recurring revenue. And when you build a business this way, when an investor, when they're looking at businesses to buy, what they're looking for is they're looking for a coupon payment, right? So if your business, whether it's a dry cleaner or a SaaS business or whatever it is, if your business is bringing $100,000 worth of profit per year, then if this investor is looking for a 10% ROI on his investment, then your business is worth $1 million, right? Because you're getting $100,000 worth of profit. Um, that's a 10% return. And you can easily flip that for for a million dollars. So if you look at it, businesses in this way, where you're trying to get recurring revenue, well, this kind of like also kind of, you know, falls back onto why this customer list is important because you don't just sell to your customer once, you have to sell it to them multiple times. And if you can figure out how to do this with a recurring system, a subscription system or a membership system, then this is like where you're actually starting to get into profitability. You can flip these companies for a lot of money as well. And I'm actually on YouTube. If you actually check out my YouTube, we're actually doing this where we're taking a SaaS company from pretty much nothing from zero to a seven figure valuation in less than 180 days. So it, it sounds like it's impossible. And if you have naysayer friends, for example, they might tell you that it's impossible, but we're actually documenting this entire process. If you go to seven figure sass.com um seven spelled all the way s-e-v-e-n um yeah seven figures sass.com it'll take you right to that youtube playlist nice 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 so i mean with that i mean you're talking about a seven figure evaluation in 180 days which to, to, in reality sounds like mind-blowing it sounds damn near impossible but again if you have systems in place you can definitely do that so my next question is posing it to an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a startup business owner that's hearing this and they're saying, okay, how the hell am I going to be able to, to, to make this a reality? 180 days, I was thinking more like 10 years to get a return, five years to get a return. So my next question is, to that person, what words of wisdom, words of insight would you leave behind for them to follow in your footsteps to get the progression that they're looking for? Yes. The key to be able to do this is to go vertical. The more you go vertical, so when I say going vertical, what we're doing is we're drilling down to a very specific niche and we're building scalable businesses based on this very specific niche, right? When you start going vertical, what ends up happening is instead of being one of these founders where they're going too wide and they're just putting the throwing spaghetti on the wall, trying to see what sticks, we are building an attraction system. So instead of chasing customers, we want to be able to attract customers. And the way that you attract customers and here's the secret, and the secret is going to sound very counterintuitive, but the way that you attract customers is you repel as many other people as possible. So you repel as many people as possible, and this process will start attracting your customer that's right for you, that's right for your product. So let me illustrate exactly what I mean by this. If 
I was kind of going about it the traditional MBA way or the traditional accelerator program way where I'm looking at this huge market size, right? And, the, and that, the reason why they do that, the idea behind that is if you can capture a small sliver of a huge market size, then an investor can come behind you with his or her capital and help you scale, right? But if you are trying to go wide, you are going to set yourself up for failure. And let, let's say I'm doing it that way where I come up with this app. Let's just say it's like a mobile app and my target market is mothers, right? And I'm thinking in my head that this is a huge market size, right? There's so many mothers in the world. And if I can just capture this small sliver of this huge market size, I will have it made. As soon as I start pitching my idea out to other people, and let's say I come on the show and I say, and I say, I have this app for mothers and, you know, here's how this app is going to help mothers, et cetera. People will probably just tune out. The, the thing about mothers is they're very busy people. They have thousands of ads that are hitting them every single day. And you're not going to get any attention if you're just saying my app is for mothers. As soon as you start repelling people, then interesting things start to happen, right? So I'm going to start repelling people. I'm going to, I'm going to go vertical and I'm going to drill down into a very specific niche. So if I say I have an app for mothers who have five-year-old children, now I've eliminated any mom that does not have a five-year-old child. That's a huge part of the market, right? So I'm like eliminating that entire portion of the market, and I'm only focused on moms with five-year-old children. But even then, this is still too vague, and this is not going to get us any attention. People are not going to be attracted by this. So we're going to keep going vertical, and we're going to keep drilling down into a very specific niche. So if I say I have an app for mothers who have five-year-old children who have special needs, now you might get some ears perked up. Now you might start getting some attention, right? But even then, this is still too vague. You're still going to have trouble. So we're going to keep going vertical and we're going to keep drilling down into a very specific niche. So if I say I have an app for mothers who have five-year-old children, who have special needs, who are being homeschooled, now, ding, 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 what's going to happen, right, is that this is going to speak to someone. If, if someone listening to this podcast right now, for example, heard that description and they are a mother with a five-year-old child that has special needs that's being homeschooled, they're going to find out everything about me. They're going to want to learn about what I'm doing, you know, how I'm, how I'm going to help them. They're, they're going to want to get in touch with me, right? Even if someone listening to this podcast doesn't fit this criteria, I'm willing to bet that someone listening to this podcast knows someone that fits this criteria. And they're going to go to this person. They're going to say, hey, I was listening to this podcast with S.A. Grant, and um, I just heard, you know, this guy named Robin, and he was, he was basically, you know, talking about this app for mothers who have five-year-old children, who have special needs, who are being homeschooled, and I thought of you. And their friend is going to be like, oh, my God, that's me. Like, I have to go check out this app. I have to go find out who Robin is, and I have to go find out what he's doing. So two interesting things happen right there, S.A. The first thing is the first person that evangelized my product wasn't even my customer, right? The first person, they just wanted to add value to the world. They knew someone that would be helped by whatever I'm building and they wanted to pass that information along. So they're evangelizing my product because I helped educate them on exactly who my product is for. And now they're an evangelist. The second interesting thing that happened is the other person that listened about my app for mothers, for five-year-old children who have special needs who are being homeschooled, they didn't even care about what features my app has. They didn't care about what benefits it brings them. They didn't care about any of the results. Nothing about the product itself mattered, right? Nothing. The only thing that mattered was that I was speaking directly to them. And because I was speaking directly to them, they already thought that I had the answer for all of their problems and they wanted to come find out on how I can help. So what this means is that the product, it really doesn't matter. What matters is 
going vertical, being as specific as possible, addressing a very specific niche that you can dominate, and then growing a customer list of that niche. And this is how you build a scalable business in a way where instead of chasing customers, you have customers come to you. Hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think definitely. I mean, what you're describing, it's kind of a, a very similar theory to what, what, what I do in my, like my marketing for Facebook, um, advanced targeting. And it's kind of like you're drilling down, right? I mean, obviously, I'm starting with podcasters, small business owners. Then I'm saying I'm looking for these two categories, but I'm also looking for a rock climber and a rock climber that's in Georgia. So you're going, your funnel gets smaller and smaller as you're, you're coming down to that pinnacle point at the bottom. And to your point, once you put something that's entrepreneur-driven about a podcast in front of a rock climber that's about a particular product, they're going to raise their hands because you're talking directly to that demographic. You're talking to that target audience. So with that, I mean, how did you get to get to that philosophy? Because I mean, obviously, this is not something that most of us don't fall into. It's, it's trial by error, or it's something that you have to figure out over a period of time. How did you come across this system? So th- this has been a little bit of, you know, learning from other people, and then a, a lot of trial by error as well. Um, for me, when I first started, you know, I, w- I was drilling down to a very specific niche, and I was just thinking about who do I serve? And this is like a very basic question that a lot of entrepreneurs have, like, who do I serve? And even with this first initial idea that I had, where I like hanging out with very creative people, um, smart people, people that, like to build, people that like to build things, I asked, thought my, my niche was entrepreneurs. And then what I learned is that even entrepreneurs that I was helping, I had this business called unblockmywebsite.com. So for people that get their their websites blocked on website, I mean, their, their websites blocked on Facebook, I helped them get it out. Um, for this website, my audience were entrepreneurs. But what I started learning is that there's all these different types of entrepreneurs. There's people that are just doing e-commerce. There are, you know, there's your solopreneurs. There are these coaches and experts. And there's all these different types. And what I've learned is that not all those people are my people. And if I'm starting to divide my focus, my attention across all these segments, it's really difficult for me to design a customer experience. And it's really difficult for me to keep my customers happy. What I'm learning now is that because I'm so focused and I'm helping my accelerator members on this you know, very narrow journey, it's really easy for me to design the experience and make sure that they're getting the outcomes that they need. But if I tried to split my focus and tried to go wide and tried to do you know, this for other people, I think the energy that it would take me, the time, like I just, I just wouldn't have it. I would have to hire a brand new team for every single one of these niches. And I'm just not at that level yet. So, I mean, if I had millions of dollars um, to spend, then yeah, I would have tons of teams addressing all these different niches and going wide. But because I, you know, I don't, and you probably don't either if you're an early stage startup founder. And if you're a founder itself, um, you're probably starting from scratch. And if you're starting from scratch, going wide is a huge mistake because it just splits your focus, it splits your attention. You don't have the capital and resources to be able to do it. You have to go narrow. You have to go very specific, right? So I gave you the example of Facebook earlier. Amazon, very same thing. Before Amazon did AWS, before they, they did Amazon Play, and before they got into the movie business, all of this stuff, before they even had e-commerce, right? They were only focused on like one very specific thing, which is people who buy books on the internet. They dominated that market before moving on to anything else. YouTube, same thing. They started off as a dating app before it became YouTube. Very nice. Very nice. So, I mean, with, with that, I mean, you, you put a hell of a lot of information, a lot of content out there. And, and obviously, I think it's kind of going back to like your marijuana reference earlier. I mean, this thing is not necessarily addictive, but it could be definitely fun. So how could people get in contact with you if they want some more of this green green from you? 
Yes, I love how you put that too. If you want this gas, um, if you go to robin.ws forward slash boss uncaged, I have a special gift for you. This is a 65 minute audio course that will actually go into more detail about the vertical method on how you can launch your companies, get your first paying customers without seeking investor funding, without doing text, without doing business plans, without begging for other people to make your dreams a reality. You can do this yourself. So if you go to robin.ws forward slash boss uncaged, it'll take you to this, this course. It's about the vertical method, 65 minute audio course. And yeah, um, once you hear it, you know, if you want to get in touch with me, get in my DMs. My Instagram is open. My Instagram is not one of those business account Instagrams. My business, my Instagram is mostly just like really hilarious shit. So if you like memes, um, if you like gangster shit, then you will love Instagram. And I can attest to that. I went to his Instagram page and, and like literally that's like the tagline. This is for gangster shit. He was had me peeing on myself <laughs> laughing. <laughs> so going into like the bonus round, right? Um, I got a bonus question for you. Like if you could spend 24 hours with anyone dead or alive, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? Oh man. The, the answer that I like to give to this is probably not the best answer, but I think Pablo Escobar, just because he's like a, such a complicated person. He started from nothing and he built this empire. And I would just love to kind of like pick his head and learn about some of the decisions that he's made, you know, find out if he's like really a psychopath or if he actually cares about people. Cause there's, I'm actually living in Colombia right now. So there's actually different perceptions. Some people actually see him as the saint because he's helped so many people. But then at the, at the you know, flip side of it, he's killed a lot of people. And it's like, what's up with that? And just, you know, how does he justify for himself? Um, what has he done? I think there's like a lot to learn from some of these underground people that you might not learn from anywhere else. And yeah, just spending 24 hours hoping that he doesn't kill me um, would be a great, great learning experience, I think. I think you would have to like ad lib and be like a fly on the wall kind of thing versus, you know, that way he won't have access to kill you directly, right? Um, yeah, I got another bonus question for you, man. I think this will be an interesting one as well. So, um, what is your most significant achievement to date? Let's see. That's such a difficult question to ask. Um, you know, I've spent my entire life just chasing different accolades, right? So I would just, if it sounded prestigious, I would just chase it and I would try to get it. And then what I've learned is every time I chase something and I get it, it doesn't really make me happy, right? So if I had to say, like, what is my greatest achievement is actually just now, like being able to live this beautiful life that I have now, not having to go to work, not having to put on a suit, not having to do anything, you know, just having this beautiful morning where I get to wake up without any stress, mm -hmm. um, get to wake up with my dog, just having full control over my own time. I am so grateful for this. Um, I, yeah, just losing my freedom, I think, would hurt me so much that having it, it every day, um, when I, whenever I breathe in, I'm just like so happy. I, I look outside my window right now, I look at the beautiful mountains of Colombia, and you know, who knows where I might be three months from now, and I just get to like live this epic life where I get to do what I want to do whenever I want to do it. And I'm surrounded by people who accept me for who I am. Nice, nice. So I mean, people definitely accept you for who you are. You're just 100% original, which you definitely come across that way 100%. So I mean, going to like my last question before we, we, we get ready to close out, I mean, talking about the Kush, the green, the, the green eye monster, like what, what's your favorite flavor? Are you more so like an edible guy? Are you more so vape, smoke, traditional? 
I've tried all of that. I, you know what? I always just go back to the flowers. And I'm a sativa guy, so I smoke 24-7. For me, um, it actually helps me concentrate. I actually learned Mandarin Chinese, and I don't think I would have been able to do it without marijuana <laughs> because it just keeps you focused. Well, at least for me. For, for different people, it affects people differently. I think one of the struggles that I had with marijuana is just getting myself to accept it. Like, this is like part of like who I am and, and, and what I like to do. Um, but before that, I was thinking, you know, I would think I would be, I guess I would be hesitant to go out into public because I'm always wondering like, oh, do people think I'm high or, or stuff like this? And yeah. then, you know, I just stopped caring. And after you stop caring, you just kind of figure things out. And it's like, no, you know, you're not stupid if you're high. You're, you're still capable of doing all these different things, et cetera. Uh, you might have a couple glitches where you lose your train of thought, et cetera. But it's just all part of the process. Um, it doesn't mean you're dumb or it doesn't mean anything like that. But yeah, to answer your question, I say, though, one of my favorite strands is if you're ever out in California, there is a strand called Smarties. And it just smells so delicious, smells so good. It's like kind of like a fruity. It's a sativa. It, you know, it's one of those strands that where you smoke it and you can just do all your house chores in one day and just get it done. Nice. That sounds like the limitless pill a little bit right there. Yeah. How about yourself? Um, I'm not really into smoking, man. I mean, obviously, okay. I don't know. I, I, I had a stroke back in 2018. So like alcohol and smoking is just kind of like off my platform. Like my high right now is is generally my adrenaline rush. So that's the only thing that I could pretty much do in coffee. But if I was to, to go into smoking, I'd probably be more of like a, a brownie kind of guy. I mean, the longevity of eating one brownie and it lasting more time than 30, 40 minutes would be ideal. Right on. Yep. So, I mean, going into closing, I mean, obviously you're a fellow podcaster, so I always like to give the microphone to whoever I'm interviewing. The show is now yours. You're now the host. What questions do you have for me? S.A., when was your first point? of time where you knew that you were an entrepreneur? Wow. I would think it was always there, but I didn't grow up in an entrepreneurial household. So I think it really hit me when I went to college. Like in high school, I had elements of it, like the hustling grind, but I really wouldn't define it until I was actually in a controlled environment. And I'm looking around and everyone else is being highly creative. And I was the oddball kind of like trying to say, well, this is cool. But how the fuck are we going to make money by doing this? And then from that point on, I never turned backwards. And I was always 100% more entrepreneurial than anything else. So would you say you're a natural born entrepreneur? I would say it's always been in there with me. But kind of like your story, you know, you're saying that your, your, your parents weren't necessarily entrepreneurs. You know, they were kind of more leveraging on the day-to-day -day versus entrepreneurs are more risk. You know, we take more risks. And then I've always been a risk taker. And I think that's where my entrepreneurial aspect was coming from, but it wasn't being utilized in the right way. I was more so the guy jumping off of moving buses and trains and jumping out of moving cars was more of my, my mind state. But when I look at what I've done business-wise, I took that energy and I leaped into things differently now, knowing that, hey, this is how you get ahead. You have to take the risk to get the bigger rewards. Okay. What would you say is your best um, accomplishment right now that you really hold dear to you? But every time I, I, I ask this question, I always say, obviously, you can't bring up like family and bring up kids. I would say my biggest accomplishment would probably be the Boston Cage brand in itself, considering that it's less than two years old and I've been in business for 21 years and I had to have a stroke to kind of wake up and rebrand myself. So I, I had a stroke 2018, Boston Cage went live um, 2020. So from 2020 to 2021, 
this particular brand has outgrown the leaps and bounds of any other business unit, any other business structure I've ever had before in less than a year. How's your, how's your uh, mentality changed from pre-stroke to post-stroke? Um, I think it's it focused, right? I mean, before, to your point that you made earlier about going wide, because at one point I was, okay, I'm a graphic designer. I have a web design degree. I have a graphic design degree. And then I went into the marketplace and I was searching for other opportunities. I became a travel agent. I became an insurance agent. I became Series 6, 63, all these different things. And I really understood money and understood the value. And I was, okay, this is, this is my big picture. I'm going to create this huge marketing company, marketing agency, and we're going to leverage traveling. We're going to leverage insurances and we're going to make it all work in this one umbrella. What, what brought you wide. down? Huh? I'm sorry. What are you saying? Oh, I, I was actually going to say, um, what I, I missed your last comment, but I was actually going to add, what brought you from Brooklyn to Atlanta? Because those are very, two different, very, you know, different places. Two different pieces. Two yeah. different pieces. So, I mean, like, I would say, I always, the, the answer to that is my parents kidnapped me, right? They kidnapped me going into like my high school year. So I ended up finishing my senior year in high school in Atlanta, which was a hell of a, a transition from New York. But now that I look back 2020 in hindsight, I mean, Atlanta is not that much different than New York was then in the sense that it's becoming more and more multicultural. It's becoming more and more active. We're, we're filming movies. We're building shit left and right. So it's becoming more and more of a metropolis that I grew up in. So being that I had that state of mind in Brooklyn and coming to Atlanta, I like to see like this new evolution of what this town is becoming. What are, what are some cultures that you like to explore? Well, I'm originally from the island. So, I mean, I'm, I love the island cultures. I, I'm, I love Asian. I mean, like, if you put me in, in Japan or you put me in, like, far, far, far East Asia, I'm completely happy. Nice. Have you had a chance to visit? Yeah, the last time I was in Asia was um, Shanghai. We was in Shanghai a couple years ago. All right. What, what brought you to Shanghai? Just for the fuck of it. <laughs> All right. Cool, cool. Fun, yeah, fun, fun city to be in. I actually lived in Shanghai for about a year. Um, I remember you don't see the sun. It's like some, it's like perpetual, mm -hmm. like what's, what's the word? Twilight, like perpetual twilight, because there's just so much smog, which is just a different type of feeling, but it's like a half futuristic feeling with this mm -hmm. perpetual twilight. What, yeah, what did you think of the I, I love that. I mean, because again, I grew up in New York. So remembering what Times Square was and what Times Square is and how long it took Times Square to kind of evolve and then going to Shanghai and knowing that the same time frame that I've been on this planet, Shanghai was farmland, Times Square was Times Square. Times Square is still Times Square and Shanghai outweighs Times Square by, I mean, every building is an LCD building. Everything is completely automated. Everything is in 10 different languages. So it's kind of like, how does something come from farmland in less than 20 years? It comes so evolved versus Times Square is just still Times Square. Okay. I think I, I think I also heard you're a foodie, which I, I'm not really a foodie. I, I actually eat a ketogenic diet. I love ice cream. That's like the only thing. But um, what was your, what, what's your favorite food type? Just and the uh, question is kind of like inspired by like your interest in cultures. Yeah, so I mean, food-wise, I, I have no cap whatsoever. I mean, I try anything three or four times, and and I, and I live up to that, right? So I mean, my favorite food generally, I would say, is octopus. It's probably one of my top ones, just for like the texture and the and the different ways of cooking it. So that kind of leads back into sushi, which goes back into the Asian culture. In addition to that, is Thai cuisine as well, Caribbean cuisine like oxtails, curry, spices, Indian cuisine. You know, it's nothing like you know grabbing some dalpuri and some roti skins and putting your hands in it and licking your fingers afterwards. Which, which, what island? Originally from Trinidad and Tobago. Okay. 
Very cool. cool. Trendy. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Well, I mean, I definitely appreciate your time today. I mean, I think it was definitely a, a well-rounded, fulfilling episode with a lot of detail, a lot of insight, a lot of steps, a lot of how-to, and I definitely appreciate you bringing that to our audience. Likewise, man. I had a, so much fun um, on your show and always love meeting another natural-born hustler, another natural-born entrepreneur, and you're definitely one, uh, you're definitely one of those. Cool, man. I appreciate it. S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762 762- 233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss on Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.